Hello, and welcome to Living Your Best Life After Cancer. I'm so glad you're here. This is your first step towards releasing your fear, regaining your joy, and reducing your risk. I'm your host, Dr. Deborah Butzbach. I'm so excited to take this journey with you. Hello, and welcome back. This is episode four, almost a month in already. I can't even believe it. Time flies when you're busy. Although sometimes even busy doesn't make time fly, and that is a bit of how I've been experiencing social distancing. Today, I'm going to spend a few minutes reviewing first. We have previously gone through allowing negative emotions. We discussed the differences between thoughts and circumstances. Last week, we talked about our primitive brains versus our upper brain and how the primitive brain is working to keep us safe. I'm wondering, were you aware at all this week of your primitive brain in the background? It is interesting. Whatever I write about, I find I think a lot more about it that next week. This past week, I was really noticing all the times my brain was trying to keep me safe and how infrequently what it told me was really useful. But I am grateful for that old primitive brain of mine when I do stupid things like step out in front of a moving car in a parking lot where my primitive brain acts quickly to have me jump out of the way. It does still serve its purpose and I'm grateful to it. I have thought a lot this week about how I want to structure this podcast. I know I want to release it weekly. I think I am going to designate one week a month as a science and medicine episode, where I share my medical experience instead of my life coaching work. These might look like questions I get on the Facebook page or from my patients, my thoughts on what you really need to focus on, and so on. Today, I'm going to spend some time talking about survivorship, what it means, and a few things that I prioritize as most important during my survivorship visits with my patients. I have to make one thing clear, though. I'm a doctor, but I'm not your doctor. All decision-making should be with you and your doctor. Nothing I say should override any medical advice your team has given you. Let's start with how many survivors there are in the U.S., Survival statistics taken from cancer.net are so enlightening to review. The number of patients who have had cancer has gone up greatly over the last 45 years in the United States. In 1971, there were 3 million people with cancer. Today, there are more than 15.5 million. Before we jump to thoughts about why there are so many more, let me explain. The answer is twofold. The population is living longer as we treat cardiac disease and other medical problems better. Longer life leads to more cancers. Second, more people are surviving cancer as our treatments improve, leading to a significant increase in the number of patients living with a cancer history in the U.S. About 67% of today's cancer survivors were diagnosed five or more years ago. About 17% of all cancer survivors were diagnosed 20 or more years ago. Nearly half of survivors are age 70 or older. Most cancer survivors have had common cancers. The top five by percents of survivors, 23% breast cancer, 21% prostate cancer, 9% colorectal cancer, 8% cervical uterine or ovarian, and about 8% melanoma. Higher survival rates now compared to the 1970s are multifactorial. They are in part due to major improvements in cancer prevention and treatment. Screening tests may find cancers earlier, including mammograms for breast cancer, PSA check, which is a blood test for prostate cancer, colonoscopy for colorectal cancer, and pap smears for cervical cancer. In terms of treatment, many cancers now have targeted drugs that significantly improve survival rates. 
Advances in radiation have also led to reductions in toxicity and improvements in survival there as well. As numbers of survivors have increased, we've had more and more patients that need us to manage their post-cancer side effects. This has led to formal survivorship programs. Survivorship is a relatively new concept in cancer care. When we Google cancer survivorship, there are at least two common meanings. The first is having no signs of cancer after finishing treatment. The second, which I think is more applicable to this discussion, is living with, through, and beyond cancer. This means that cancer survivorship starts at diagnosis. It also includes people who receive treatment over a longer time and includes people with metastatic disease. Co-survivor is sometimes used to describe a person that has cared for a loved one with cancer. I love this term because it's really true that those closest to the cancer patient often struggle as well, and I think that they need to be taken into account in recovery from cancer. Some cancer sites describe three phases of survivorship. Acute survivorship starts at diagnosis and goes through the end of initial treatment. During acute survivorship, cancer treatment is the focus. Extended survivorship starts at the end of initial treatment and goes through the months after. The effects of cancer and treatment are the focus there. Permanent survivorship is when years have passed since cancer treatment ended. At that point, there is less of a chance that the cancer may come back. Long-term effects of cancer and treatment are the focus. For most cancers, five years is when the risk of cancer recurrence significantly decreases, and this is when you may be told you're cured. This varies from cancer to cancer, though, so your doctor can give you a better idea of when you're really out of the woods. Not everyone who has had cancer likes the word survivor. For instance, they may simply identify more with being a person who has had cancer, or if they are dealing with cancer every day, they may describe themselves as living with cancer. Therefore, they may not think of themselves as a survivor. Living with a history of cancer looks different for each and every person, but I think it's fair to say that most people feel that life is different after cancer. As I discussed in a previous podcast, for some, cancer has the silver lining of living more in the present and worrying less about the small stuff, but for many people, this also comes with worrying more about one's health. At the end of treatment, patients commonly have less frequent contact with their healthcare team. That fact has different patients thinking different thoughts and feeling different feelings. Many people feel relief that treatment is over, but some actually worry more once treatment is complete. They have a feeling that as long as they are on active treatment and they are seeing their doctors weekly, nothing bad can happen. Completing treatment leads to uncertainty about the future, increased anxiety, and fear of recurrence. This actually is surprisingly common, and if you are feeling that, you are definitely not alone. Some people also have guilt about surviving, especially if they have lost other family members to cancer. Physical, psychological, sexual, and fertility problems, relationship struggles, discrimination at work can all surface in survivorship and need to be attended to. Most cancer centers have teams that can help with physical sequelae of treatment, and many have resources to help with other issues like finances, fertility, work problems, so reach out to your team if you have specific issues following treatment. For most of my patients, I do a formal survivorship appointment at three months. I find this is a great time to review where I really want patients to focus their energies. Today, I will spend some time discussing the things I focus on at that visit. What I recommend most strongly to all of my patients, I recommend that you limit bringing toxins into your body. From my standpoint, the two places that people most commonly bring toxins into their bodies, 
is with cigarettes and alcohol. If you smoke currently and have had a cancer, I highly recommend you stop smoking. If no one has told you this, your body has allowed one cancer to grow and your immune system let it happen. Smoking is a carcinogen and increases your risk of another cancer. If your immune system let one cancer start, I think you are really rolling the dice continuing to smoke. Just so we are clear, smoking is the number one cause of preventable death in the United States. It is linked to one in five deaths, or 20% of all deaths in the U.S. per year. It increases your risk of cancer, heart disease, COPD, emphysema, diabetes, and stroke. The CDC tells us the following about smoking. Cigarette smoking is the number one risk factor for lung cancer. In the United States, cigarette smoking is linked to about 80 to 90% of lung cancer deaths. Tobacco smoke is a toxic mix of more than 7,000 chemicals. Many are poisons. At least 70 are known to cause cancer in people or animals. People who smoke cigarettes are 15 to 30 times more likely to get lung cancer or die from lung cancer than people who do not smoke. Even smoking a few cigarettes a day or smoking occasionally increases the risk of lung cancer. The more years a person smokes and the more cigarettes smoked each day, the more the risk goes up. Quitting smoking at any age can lower the risk of lung cancer. Furthermore, cigarette smoking can cause cancers in other parts of your body. It can cause cancer of the mouth and throat, esophagus, stomach, colon, rectum, liver, pancreas, larynx, or voice box, trachea, bronchus, kidney, bladder, and cervix, and it causes acute myeloid leukemia in addition to lung cancer. I'm really sorry if I sound like I'm on a soapbox. I can't help myself. Cancer patients smoking makes me want to freak out a little. There are many ways to work on quitting and medications that can make it easier, so think about it. If you quit, you might even have enough money left over to plan an awesome trip sometime. The next place we bring toxins into our body is with alcohol. I will admit, I struggle more with this. Before the data that I'm about to share came out, I had a glass of wine every night with dinner. The Mayo Clinic and the CDC give the following guidelines regarding alcohol use. They define heavy or high-risk drinking as more than three drinks on any day, or more than seven drinks a week for women and for men older than 65 and more than four drinks on any day, or more than 14 drinks a week for men aged 65 or younger. I was fine following this recommendation and keeping to seven drinks or less, but then data began to come out about the risk of breast cancer with alcohol use. Therese Beavers, a medical director of MD Anderson's Cancer Prevention Center, shares the following on the MD Anderson website. More than 100 studies have looked at the association between alcohol consumption and breast cancer risk in women. These studies, although observational, have consistently found an increased risk of breast cancer associated with alcohol intake. Okay, so what that means is that the studies weren't randomized where half of the people drank and half didn't. They were observational studies looking at breast cancer rates among people who reported that they did drink and those who reported that they didn't, and they drew conclusions from this data. The data suggests that compared to women who don't drink at all, women who have three alcoholic drinks per week have a 15% higher risk of breast cancer. Experts estimate that the risk of breast cancer goes up another 10% for each additional drink women regularly have each day. Those numbers are somewhat confusing, but to give you an idea, the risk of breast cancer across the population is about one in eight women. 
So a 15% increase approximately takes it from 1 in 8 to 1 in 7. While only a few studies have been done on drinking alcohol and the risk of recurrence, a 2009 study found that drinking even a few alcoholic beverages per week, three to four drinks, increased the risk of breast cancer coming back in women who'd been diagnosed with early stage disease. This data was compelling enough for me to tell my patients that they should limit their alcohol to five drinks per week or less and follow that recommendation myself. I will admit, on vacation, I have more, but most of the year, I really try to stay at that level. Just an aside, if you do find that this is a struggle, one of the ways I've sort of dealt with that is to have sparkling water in a wine glass with a twist of lime. During the week, I've switched to that almost every night, and I find that making it fancy in a nice glass with the lime gives me some part of the experience. I think it has tricked my primitive brain into thinking it's still getting a treat and doesn't need to be squawking away. It isn't the same, but I do think it's better than nothing. Moving on, another place I think we have to think about toxins is in what we eat. I think our bodies are not made for lots of processed foods. Genetically speaking, our bodies are designed to eat veggies, fruit, and protein. That is what we ate for almost 150,000 years. It is only in the much more recent past that we've began having highly processed grains as a daily staple in the form of breads, cereal, pasta, and so on. It's really only in the last 50 years that foods came in boxes with shelf lives of months or years. We all know from reading the side of a box of food that much of what is in there is chemically processed, significantly altered, preserved, colored, with chemicals added for texture and taste as well. Some of the more scary ones, sodium nitrate is added to processed meats to stop bacterial growth. In 2015, the World Health Organization, or WHO, classified processed meats as a group one carcinogen, citing sufficient evidence that they cause cancer in humans, and this appears linked to their nitrate concentration. Other chemicals like potassium bromate in breads, propyl gallate in fat-containing products, BHA and BHT, fat preservatives which are used in foods to extend shelf life, butane which is in chicken nuggets to keep them tasting fresh, all have been questionably linked to cancer. Refined vegetable oil including soybean oil, corn oil, safflower oil, canola oil, and peanut oil are all high in omega-6 fats which are thought to cause heart disease and cancer. Sodium benzoate is used as a preservative in salad dressings and carbonated beverages and is a known carcinogen. Polysorbate-60 is a thickener used in baked goods. Magnesium sulfate in tofu, also cancer in laboratory animals. All of these things make me really feel like we should be looking at what's in our food and trying to avoid as many processed things as possible. There really is a simple solution to all of this. It is beautifully stated by Michael Pollan in his Three Simple Rules for Eating. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. If you eat in moderation, with plants as the bulk of your meal, with or without some meat on the side, you will avoid most of these chemicals. I do think choosing some organic is helpful if it's financially available to your household. Patients all the time ask me what I do in our household, so I'll share that here. Our household went to organic meats and milk when we had kids. We eat organic meat and milk because I believe the hormones are bad for children and also not good for women in terms of breast cancer. We also get our veggies in the summer from a local organic farm that has a summer subscription. I have to say, I think this is a really great option on so many fronts. 
It supports your local suppliers. It limits your carbon footprint from getting your veggies close to home. It encourages you to try things you might not normally eat. It encourages eating more veggies, if for no other reason than just to get them out of the fridge before your next box gets delivered. Even before I started life coaching and lost weight, my household cooked most of what we ate, but we did eat bread, pasta, and other carbs. Since losing weight, I follow an intermittent fasting program as outlined in the book, The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. My patients will all tell you, I tell them all to read this book if they are struggling with their weight. And I will talk more about the science of intermittent fasting in another one of the podcasts. I predominantly eat veggies, including white and sweet potatoes, squash and other starchy vegetables, brown rice, fruit, and I do add fats to help with satiety. I really am a huge fan of putting avocado on just about everything. With the intermittent fasting, I've continued to slowly lose weight over 18 months on this program, and I really feel good about what I'm putting in my body. My husband and kids eat the same, but with the addition of some pasta and bread if we aren't having rice or potatoes. One of the things I think is the key is learning to shop the periphery of the grocery store first, and really try to get 98% of your food from there. I only venture down the other aisles if there is something on the list that we really need, and I try not to buy any impulse purchases. Patients ask all the time about canned or jarred foods. Most of the time, you can get stuff in a can or a jar with less in terms of preservatives and chemicals, and I do use canned beans, jarred tomato sauce, ketchup, and so on. I mean, really, can you imagine a house with four boys between the ages of 11 and 16 with no ketchup? Really, the issue in ketchup is the high fructose corn syrup. Initially, they liked the taste of the high fructose corn syrup ones better, but we used it for a while and eventually they got used to it and have stopped complaining. So that is about it for today. I will tell you, if I had my choice, I would pick that you spend 100% of your effort on stopping smoking if you're a smoker. If you aren't a smoker, then I would tell you to spend 95% of your effort on reducing your drinking, especially if you drink more than one drink per day as a woman, and 5% of your effort on food, predominantly with cutting out most of the processed meats first, since we have a pretty clear idea that nitrates are related to malignancy. If you don't drink and don't smoke, that's awesome. If you have the time and energy to cook your food, then great, try to reduce your processed foods to some degree. If this causes a huge amount of stress and misery for you, then it is probably not worth it, and I would suggest you consider limiting processed meats and non-organic milk. I have to tell you, as I am typing, I feel a little guilty, and I would like to tell you something so that you aren't saying to yourself, what, this woman is a doctor, has four kids, does a podcast, and cooks all of her household's food from scratch? It's not the case. We have a nanny who does much of our shopping and cooking. And now the kids are bigger, she doesn't do as much nannying. So I get it if your life just won't support cooking daily. I'm just trying to be real with you and let you know I understand the struggles of the working moms. When the kids were little and the nanny was just trying to keep them all alive, it was a lot harder getting a healthy meal on the table when I got home from the hospital. So that's it for now. Hope you have a great week. Hope this motivates you to make some positive changes in your life that will help reduce your overall risk. Talk with you soon. I'm so glad you were able to join me today. You can find more information on my Facebook page, Best Life After Cancer MD. If you have a minute, it would be really awesome if you could write a review. This will help other people who are struggling find my podcast. 
Again, so nice to speak with all of you today, and I'll speak with you soon. Thank you.